Welcome to this, our kind of premier uh, event at the University of Oxford for engagements uh, in science with the public. Um, we're very glad to be back at the Playhouse in the newly furbished seats. I've been trying to work out some patterns of the arrangement of colours here, uh, and it's completely fox me, so uh, probably the decimal expansion of pi. Uh, but it's, it's great to have such a, a, a wonderful audience. Uh, I'd also like to thank the Amalur Foundation, um, who uh, financially make this possible as well. And I think it's a testament to the subjects that will be uh, addressed tonight that uh, this probably has been the, the fastest selling Simone lecture I've been involved in because the, uh, the topic that we're going to be talking about um, is the subject of autism, which uh, unfortunately affects many people in our society. But maybe I shouldn't say unfortunately, and that's um, somehow, I think, the, the, what we're going to be exploring. We have a very Fantastic speaker, Simon Baron Cohen, who's um, a director of the Centre, the Autism Research Centre in Cambridge. He's a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge. And uh, I first met him actually uh, because I, I think at the maths department, we often kind of slightly joke about we, there are more of us on the kind of aspergic autistic spectrum than in any other department um, in this university. And um, I do remember an interview a few years ago with uh, one of my colleagues, actually, when I was at Cambridge, uh, 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 Richard Borchards, um, who uh, in, was being interviewed by Simon Singh um, in The Guardian after he'd won our Nobel Prize, the Fields Medal. Um, and he sort of confessed to Simon that, um, well, I, I looked on this kind of scale of Asperger's and I scored five out of the six key indicators for Asperger's. He kind of self-diagnosed himself. Um, and Simon uh, picked this up, and one of his books, which I really enjoyed reading, uh, The Essential Difference, exploring uh, what makes an autistic brain slightly different, what is the defining factor, actually dedicated a chapter to exploring whether um, Richard was, in fact, aspergic or, or, or not. Um, and uh, that's really at the heart of the, the talk today, because we're going to be exploring the question of autism and minds wired for science. So, um, you know, is it actually a positive trait for us mathematicians? <laughs> we just give a great positive welcome to Simon Baron Cohen. So, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be back in Oxford. Uh, I was a student here some 30 years ago. Uh, so, there's a nostalgia about getting off the train and coming back into this beautiful city. Um, and I want to thank um, the organisers of, of this lecture for inviting me to give uh, a talk in this series. Uh, it feels like a, an honour. Um, this afternoon, this evening, I'll be exploring this topic uh, of autism, but its connection to scientific talent. So I thought I'd start just with an image of um, almost a stereotype of a child with autism, uh, because sometimes a picture says more than words can. Uh, so what we see is a boy, and autism affects boys much more often than girls. Uh, and this boy is playing alone. And part of the diagnosis of autism uh, are difficulties in social interaction and in communication. But you can also see in this picture that he's doing something intelligent. He's lining up his toys in a very precise way, and he's making patterns. And those of you who 
live with autism, live with someone with autism, know that people with autism love patterns, they love order in their universe, and what upsets them most is if someone comes along and disturbs their perfect order. But either way, what we're seeing is, in some res respects, a disability, struggling with socialization, but in other respects, a mind that is very precise and very ordered. Here's one more child with autism. Um, and this child is playing with water and he's fascinated by how the patterns of water droplets change as he blocks the flow of water with his hands. So again, we're seeing a child who, in one context, struggles. And we shouldn't lose sight of the disability. But left to their own devices, they have a fascination with patterns. And that's really the topic I want to discuss. Before I do that, a little bit about the background to autism. Because this uh, graph shows you that autism has been uh, diagnosed increasingly often, year by year. The data here goes from 1996 through to 2005, just showing you the number of cases per thousand being diagnosed. So it's been a steady increase. And some people have wondered what's driving this. And in all likelihood, it's quite ordinary factors that we're just getting more aware of autism, that uh, we're getting better at recognizing it, that there are more services on the ground looking for it. Uh, but also we've broadened our definition of autism, particularly to include a subgroup called Asperger's syndrome that Marcus just referred to. So we've added another subgroup, and that will, of course, inflate the numbers. That's the data up to 2005, and you can see that this next graph takes us a bit further from 2006 up to 2012. That increase has continued. So you might be wondering, where is this leading? Autism is uh, being diagnosed more and more. And I think this is a good thing, because the diagnosis, when it's done properly, uh, is done for a reason, which is to help individuals who are struggling. Uh, so I think we're getting closer to recognising all of the individuals that need that support. I don't think we're over-diagnosing. Um, uh, but I suppose the other trend that comes out from these two graphs is that in the old days, and this is when I started in autism research, the condition was thought to be very rare. They used to say four in 10,000 children. Nowadays, if I go to the most up-to-date data, um, so this is 2014, published data from the States, from the Center for Disease Control. The Americans regard this as a disease or a disorder. But you can see that the current figures are one in 48 boys and one in 189 girls. So we're still seeing autism being more common in boys. If you average across the two genders, it comes out to one in 68. So it's no longer rare, it's actually very common. Uh, and um, the graph, in a way, shows you autism in a snapshot because it also shows you that some people on this autism spectrum, as it's called, also have learning difficulties. They're delayed in their development more generally. They may even have language delay. And that's true both in the boys and the girls. There's a proportion who have learning difficulties as well. But you can have autism without any learning difficulties, 
without any delay in your development. So average IQ, even above average IQ. And that's really what creates this breadth uh, of the spectrum. So when this, this term, the autism spectrum, was coined, goes back to 1988, we thought this was very interesting, the idea that there might be a spectrum of autistic traits and thought about how we could measure it. So Marcus just mentioned this questionnaire that Richard Warshows had uh, taken, had completed. Um, it's called the Autism Spectrum Quotient. So you can find it on the web. You can, uh, you can complete it and see how many autistic traits you have. And the dotted line on, on the left, that bell curve, shows you that autistic traits are normally distributed throughout the population. We all have some. So there's a bell curve. The solid line on the right uh, are the scores that people who end up with a diagnosis show, the distribution of scores that they have. And again, even within the clinic, you see a range of scores. I should help you to read this by saying that along the horizontal axis, the x-axis, it goes from 0 through to 50. And if you're scoring very high, so you're shifted over towards the right of that graph, you may need a diagnosis. But it's only when these traits are interfering with your ability to cope in life, whether as a child or, as a, or an adult, that you would need a diagnosis. Otherwise, these traits are just there, and they might have some adaptive or positive uh, characteristics. So what else do we know about autism? Well, the first thing is we know that it's partly genetic. So here we've got a, uh, an image of a family where one of the children has autism. What we know is that if one child in the family has autism, the likelihood of another child in the same family also receiving a diagnosis is one in three. So although in the general population it's about 1%, as soon as you've got a family relative with the diagnosis, your odds of getting, uh, of, of getting diagnosed dramatically shoot up. And we think that that's to do with genetics. The reason we think that is that these days you can look at the genome and the picture on the top here shows you the human chromosomes, 23 pairs of chromosomes. Uh, but each little dot on the chromosomes uh, is a genetic association that's been reported in the scientific literature. This has been constantly updated on the website that is shown down below, gene.safari.org, because almost um, every week, in one of the scientific journals, there'll be a new report about a genetic discovery, genes associated with autism. When I last looked, there were over 400 genes that had been identified as linked to autism. So we know we're talking about a complex condition in terms of it being polygenic. And um, we know that these genes are literally found right across the genome, every human chromosome. You can see that a lot of these genes are expressed in the brain. So this, uh, this image uh, superimposes uh, gene expression amongst some of those genes that have been identified as linked to autism. Those ones that are found in the brain, uh, again published in now high-profile journals uh, in the scientific world. So I mentioned that autism is partly genetic, not completely genetic, because you can have 
identical twins like these sisters, where one has autism and one doesn't. So the very existence of so-called discordant pairs of twins, even though they're genetically identical, but one has it and one doesn't, means that genes can't be the whole story. There must be environmental factors that interact with your genetic predisposition. Um, we don't have such a good handle on what those genetic factors are, but suffice it to say that twin studies uh, just make, uh, they make the argument that environment must also be interacting with, with genetics. So I've mentioned that autism entails disability, but I don't want to lose sight of that. Uh, that when you have your diagnosis, it's because you really need it, you're, you're struggling. And universities like Oxford have students with autism who hopefully find their way to the Disability Resource Centre where they get extra support because of their disability. And that disability is very much in the realm of social interaction. What we know is that those difficulties or differences in ability to cope with the social world start very early. This is a study looking at brain activity in babies where there's already a child with autism, so they're tracking the next child in the family who's at genetic risk for autism, uh, and just looking at whether they show the expected pattern of brain activity when they're looking at a face where the eyes are either directed straight at the child or looking away from the child. In a typical child, we, our brain, uh, the child's brain is exquisitely sensitive to whether they're being looked at or not being looked at. We pay a lot of attention to faces. But we find that in children with autism or children who have a, a, a risk of autism for genetic reasons, that brain activity is different. It's reduced uh, in response to changes in, in looking at someone else's gaze. So that's very early on, uh, even as young as six months old. This study comes from California, the University of California at San Diego, where they took children at the earliest point you can diagnose autism, which is about two years old, and they presented children coming into the clinic either with a human face to look at or a geometric design. And they simply measured how long the child looks at either the social stimulus, the human face, or the non-social stimulus, the ge geometric design. What they found was that if a child looks for more than 70% of the time at the non-social stimulus, the geometric design, the probability that that child has autism was 100%. So I, when I read this article, I was quite impressed that there might be a behavioral test that could be used to diagnose autism. So there's a little caveat here. Before I go into that, I suppose what we're seeing is that the typical child, again, pays a lot of attention to faces. Faces are important in our environment. But these kids who go on to develop autism or receive a diagnosis of autism may be less interested in faces, more interested in patterns. But what's the caveat about this diagnostic test? And if you drill down into the data, you actually see each of these dots is a child and they've been assigned into different groups. And the autism group are the, are the red dots. And the horizontal line going across the screen shows you if you're looking more at the geometric patterns rather than faces. If you're above that line, 
you're looking more than 70% of the time at geometric designs. So you can see it's true. There's a lot more of those red dots above the line. So a lot of children with autism would get picked up using this behavioral test. But equally, those mathematicians or uh, those who love statistics in the audience will see that there's a, a, a wide range from the scatter. A lot of kids who the red dots are below the line, which means that they've been missed by this test. So we have to interpret some of these scientific findings with caution. But either way, it's telling us that as a group, children with autism seem to be more biased to looking at patterns than they are at faces. This is a study that came from Yale University where they used gaze tracking. So this time, what they're doing is putting the child in front of a computer whilst they're watching a movie, and the computer can track what the person is looking at whilst they're watching the movie. So the red and yellow patterns that you see on Elizabeth Taylor's face as they're watching the movie Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? The yellow pattern is where the typical viewer is watching or looking, mostly looking at the eye region of the face. The red area in this image is where people with autism tend to look. They look less at the eyes and more at the mouth whilst they're watching the movie. So again, we're seeing differences in how people with autism look at faces. They may not be showing the typical uh, profile as the typical uh, pattern of attention uh, when they're presented with social information. So if we took a kind of developmental uh, approach to thinking about children, ch child development uh, and social understanding, if you're not looking so much at faces and if you're not really thinking about people as much as a typical child, that might mean that you're delayed in your development at what's called theory of mind, being able to imagine what other people are thinking or feeling, being able to put yourself into someone else's shoes and take someone else's perspective. And that's exactly what's found in autism, that these children struggle to keep track of who knows what or what other people's motives are. And ordinary games like hide and seek, where there's an element of deception and which the typical child loves to engage in, are games that leave the child with autism often feeling confused, stressed, and they prefer just to withdraw into the more predictable world of patterns. We've tried to track what's going on in the brain, uh, which is different in autism compared to a typical person, when they're asked to look at the eye region of the face. So up above, we show people photographs of the eye region, and we ask them to pick which of these four words best describes what the person in the photo is thinking or feeling. So this is um, a tough test. All you've got is the eyes. The correct answer here is that she's a bit dispirited or a bit sad. I can see some of you nodding, suggesting that you got that one right. <laughs> um, it's tough because all four words describe possible states of mind. It's tough because the black and white photo is not very high resolution. Uh, it's tough because you've only got a fragment of information. You don't have the whole facial expression. And what you can see in the graph is that people with autism score lower on this test. Uh, those are the two bars, the males and females, over to the left of that graph, compared to typical males and females, 
And this was quite a large data set because we collected the data online. When we asked people to take that test whilst they're lying in a scanner for a brain scan, so we can look at patterns of brain activity, we also see a difference that in the typical population, we see a lot of activity in a part of the frontal lobe, the left inferior frontal gyrus. We find reduced activity in the autistic brain uh, when they're looking at these facial expressions, just the eyes, to try and decode what someone else is thinking or feeling. So that's showing some of the disability in autism. But what we're also aware of is that there's, when we look at the brain in autism, we don't see evidence that things are broken or disordered or dysfunctional. We actually simply see difference. That the autistic brain is just developing differently. And this is a theme that I'm going to build on. So I'm going to show you some of these differences as part of the journey into understanding autism. So this study is looking at one particular structure in the brain, the amygdala. Some people think of the amygdala as the emotion center of the brain. Uh, it's deep in the brain, below the cortex. And this structure uh, is larger in children with autism compared to typical children. So what we're seeing is a difference in the volume of a particular region of the brain. It's not a sign that anything is dysfunctional or diseased. And this is why we should start challenging the perception or the label that autism is a disorder. Because what we're seeing is difference. Here's a bit more evidence for the idea that autism entails just a different pattern of brain development. So the graph on the left uh, is where each dot is a child and they, they have two brain scans during their, their, during their childhood. So what that means is you can track how the brain is growing. You're looking at brain development or brain growth. You can join the dots to see if the typical group, shown in blue, or the autism group, shown in red, differ in terms of the way the brain is growing. But what you can see is that there is indeed a difference. So this is just showing you total amount of grey matter in the brain. So again, it's looking at, the, at an aspect of the volume of the brain. And that um, this is quite early in development. During the first five years of life, the autistic brain is larger at each of those time points than the typical brain on average. So the brain in autism seems to be growing faster and larger than in typical development. Again, not a sign of disease or pathology, simply a different pattern of development. On the right of this slide, we see evidence from a post-mortem study. So sometimes scientists have the opportunity to look in more detail at the brain because the next of kin are willing to donate the brain for research uh, after tragically someone with autism has died. And actually here in Oxford uh, is the National Autism Brain Bank. But this study comes from California. They have a brain bank for autism too. And what they found was that the autistic brain is indeed larger and heavier, but it's also got 65% more nerve cells or neurons in the frontal cortex. So again, when you look at the fine detail, so-called neuropathology of the brain, you see a difference in the way the brain is structured. 
not a sign of disease, but a sign of difference. Here's a bit more evidence of brain difference. This time we're looking at another structure in the brain, which is coloured in green. It's called the corpus callosum, which is the connective tissue between the two hemispheres, two halves of the brain. And in a part of this uh, structure is actually smaller in children with autism. So some bits are larger, some bits are smaller. The whole pattern of development is different. And this is a very recent study where scientists have worked out a method of looking at connectivity within the brain because we imagine that those uh, neural connections in the brain, some of them are long range and some of them are short range. And there's now a method to be able to separate the short range and the long range. What you find is more of the short range connections in the autistic brain and more of the long-range connections in the typical brain. So again, what we're seeing, emerging, is that these are individuals with a very different mind, a very different brain. Again, back to the post-mortem studies, this is about the most detailed level that you can get, which is down to the individual neuron, or the individual nerve cell. So now what we're looking at, on the right, is a neuron from a brain of someone with autism, and on the left, the same thing from a typical person, typical brain. What you should be able to see, even with the naked eye, is that the nerve cell from the person with autism has got more of those white dots up and down the nerve cell. Each of those white dots is a point of connection between one neuron and its neighbour, so-called dendritic spines. And that means that in autism, we're seeing more connections between nerve cells than in a typical brain. So far from this being a brain that is in some way disordered or pathological, this is a brain that seems to be developing faster, seems to be developing more nerve cells, seems to be developing more connections between nerve cells. And you could just try to imagine, what would that do to your experience? It might mean that you're picking up more information than other people. So in a lecture theatre like this, if you have autism, you wouldn't necessarily just be focusing on the talk, but you might be focusing on all kinds of information, like the background sounds, the lights, the patterns of the colours of the seats, as Marcus mentioned, all sorts of things that's just bombarding your senses. And in some environments, that might be overwhelming, so-called sensory overload. But in other environments, that might just mean that you're taking in more data you're able to see more patterns, more information than the typical brain. Here's some evidence for that sensory hypersensitivity. So if you ask people with autism to have a brain scan, so now you're not looking at the structure of the brain, but more the function of the brain, brain activity. And the way this experiment was done was to ask people to wear a blindfold, but wear headphones, and you just look at the brain and see what happens when you play a sound through the, heads, through the headphones. What you find is that in the autistic brain, there's a greater response in the auditory cortex just to hearing a sound. So this is evidence of auditory hypersensitivity. And I think you could do this kind of experiment with the other senses, with taste or touch uh, or smell or, or vision, and find uh, a greater response so-called sensory hypersensitivity. 
So when we meet people with autism, we should keep that in mind. That this is a person that might be very sensitive to their environment, might mean that we need to make reasonable adjustments to the environments in which they learn, so that they are autism-friendly. But it might also mean that this is an individual who's picking up much more information than the rest of us. So I'm a psychologist, and the implication for what I've told you so far is that these individuals, people with autism, might pick up more detail and maybe less of the big picture. They might be processing detail. What's the evidence for this? Well, here's a test. Uh, it's called the embedded figures test, where you have to find that cue as quickly as you can in the overall design. What we find is that people with autism are super quick, super accurate at spotting the part within the whole. So their focus of attention is more on the detail than on the big picture. And again, if you ask them to do that test whilst they're lying in a scanner, having a brain scan, you find that that better performance is actually accompanied by less brain activity in the visual cortex. So the autistic brain is superior on this task, but the brain is doing it in a more efficient way. So although we should think about autism as a disability, we can design tests which also reveal talent. Here's more evidence for uh, people with autism preferring detail over big picture. This is actually a test that those of you who are in the field of psychology will recognize. Uh, it's the block design test, which is part of the IQ test that a lot of children and adults are given. What you're asked to do is take the blocks down below and select which ones you need to make the design up above. Again, children with autism, indeed adults with autism, show their best performance on this subtest of the IQ measure. Uh, and it's suggested that that's because they're very quick at taking apart the big picture and disaggregating it into its component parts. They're very quickly looking for the detail, um, suggesting again that they have a talent at processing detail over, um, over larger context. I'll show you a few more of these just to give you a sense of it. So here the test is simply, what letter do you see? And there's no correct answer here, but people with autism tend to say that they see the letter H. Uh, people who focus on the big picture might say they see the letter A. Both answers are correct, but really the test is picking up on whether you preferentially go for detail or preferentially go for uh, the big picture. Again, it's a simple test showing that the bias in autism is for the lowest level of, of detail, uh, looking at uh, component parts. And indeed, this study shows that people with autism are also better, they score higher on a test of spotting patterns as you present information across successive slides and uh, you see how quickly people can predict where particular uh, information is going to be displayed on the screen. But people with autism are quicker at picking up these, these patterns of how some stimuli, some objects, always occur next to or above other ones. So they're very quick at spotting patterns. So let's bring this back to life. This is Derek Paravicini, 
he has autism. Some of you may have heard him play because he plays the piano and he plays publicly. Uh, he's also blind from birth and he has learning difficulties. In fact, his mental age is something around the equivalent of a three or four year old. But he only needs to hear any jazz song played once to be able to reproduce it. And uh, he goes around the world on tour performing requests of jazz numbers that people shout out in the audience, which is why we've got the piano here, just in case he's in the audience. <laughs> um, but this is kind of another nice illustration of how the autistic brain and the autistic mind is focusing on patterns. In his case, they're auditory patterns. <coughs> he can't see, but despite that, his brain is latching onto information where there are patterns to be found, there's structure in the universe. And he's very quick at doing it. And, and his autism, arguably, is giving rise to his, his talent. So some of you will have come across a book that was published earlier this year, or late last year, called Neurotribes. Um, it's by a journalist called Steve Silverman. And it won the Samuel Johnson Prize for nonfiction, very deservedly, because it tells a wonderful history of autism, about people with autism right through the centuries who may have not had that formal diagnosis, but may have had all the, the characteristics. Indeed, you can see an image here of Henry Cavendish, the scientist who discovered hydrogen, but who, Silverman argues, very convincingly, probably had autism. He did his utmost to avoid people. He would go in one entrance of the house to make sure that um, he didn't bump into anyone going through any of the other doors of the house. He was happiest really when he was doing his scientific experiments alone, but he hated social interaction. Nevertheless, he made remarkable contributions to, to science. Now, those of you who, can, who like detail can read the, the subtitle of Silverman's book, the Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. His book, I think one of the reasons why it's done so well, is because it's almost a manifesto for this new concept of neurodiversity. The idea that there isn't a single way to be normal. There isn't a single way for the brain to develop. There's probably a hundred or even a thousand different ways for the brain to develop. Uh, that we're not all identical. And you can actually see the image on the front cover of his book is really taken from the more familiar concept of biodiversity. We don't expect all biological entities to be identical. That's part of the richness of the forests and of the animal kingdom. And in the same way, when we think about human brains in any classroom of children or in any audience in a Oxford Playhouse, we should expect all of these brains to be different. Uh, and this has implications for how we educate, uh, for how we design our environments to maximize human potential. But it also has the implication that just because someone isn't shown the typical pattern of development, we shouldn't pathologize them, we should include them. We should make our society more inclusive for people who just think differently. So this notion of neurodiversity, it's actually been around 
um, for, <coughs> since about 1998, when it first appeared in print, the term was actually attributed to a person on the autism spectrum who first coined it. But you'll increasingly hear people talking about it. And the reason I think it's so important, it goes far as to say it's a revolutionary concept, is it's forcing psychiatry as a, prof as a profession to rethink the notion of uh, a psychiatric illness and to think more about diversity in the population, how minds differ. And indeed, this poster is produced by the autism rights movement, who quite rightly are asking for their difference to be recognised as just as any minority wants to be recognised as different and to be respected as different. So we don't expect all fruits to be the same. We shouldn't expect all minds to be the same. But as they say, we're different, but we're not less. We're not inferior, we're just different. And they're asking for, you can see their slogan, autism acceptance, which is a very different sort of view to the way the medical profession might previously have thought about autism, which needed either eradication, treatment, cure, prevention, the very medical model, rather than acceptance and support. This idea about neurodiversity, I think this idea has been around for longer than 1988. In fact, if you go back to the writings of Albert Einstein, uh, what you see is a nice quotation. If you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live believing it is stupid. So fish are very good at one thing, but they're not very good at another. And probably we, sh we should take each animal, each brain, on its own merits rather than expecting it to be something very different. And Einstein, people have argued, they also have had autism. He said, I do not socialise because it would distract me from my work. He much preferred the laboratory in physics, the world of theoretical physics, the world of patterns and numbers, and uh, he, he liked being alone. Uh, he played the violin, but he also liked going sailing. When he was in Princeton, he used to sail alone. That doesn't mean that there was anything wrong with him. It just meant that he had a different pattern of interests, and he was a bit different. I would sort of take issue with this idea of trying to diagnose historical figures. He's not here to speak up for himself. But it is interesting uh, that some of the traits that we associate with autism are found in the biographies of some of these very talented scientists. So on the left here, we see the paediatrician Hans Asperger. So he's the, the doctor whose name is now given to one of the subgroups on the, autism uh, on the autism spectrum. And a quote from his clinical report, he said, for success in science, a dash of autism is essential. So I quite like this quotation because he's linking on the one hand, something that we think of as a disability with, on the other hand, talent or, or um, uh, uh, yes, uh, talent. He's also making this idea, coming up with this idea that you can have a dash of autism. It's not that you either have it or you don't have it, but again, I think this was a precursor to the idea of a spectrum that runs right through the population. And I've included here uh, Isaac Newton, 
who again, biographers have made the claim, would have received a diagnosis of autism. So the discoverer of gravity, but again, who had great difficulties with social relationships right through his professional career. Um, if we focus on his social skills, we might have focused on areas of difficulty. But if we actually just focus on what he was good at, then we see the positive. Let's leave dead scientists behind because of the difficulty in ever validating whether they needed a diagnosis. We've looked at people who have autism, who are living today, to see um, whether they have a scientific interest, if you like. And one of the ways we've done this is to, to give them a questionnaire, asking them how interested they are in systems of one kind or another. So systems might be mechanical, um, like a car engine, they might be uh, electronic, like a computer. They might be natural, like the weather. They might be abstract, like mathematics. And in this questionnaire, we ask individuals with autism and people in the general population, how interested are you in these very lawful uh, systems that exist out in the world around us? And people with autism score higher than people without autism in terms of their self-report, that they're very interested, uh, they're drawn to lawful systems. So we've coined this word systemizing, and I want to just go into this in a little bit more detail. The idea that there are systems all around us, and when we systemize, what we're trying to do is identify the laws that govern that system. It doesn't really matter what the system is, but the process seems to fall into these three steps. That you take the input, that's what you see around you, you then observe what happens when an operation occurs. So some event happens or where you manipulate the input. And then you observe the output. You see the result of that in the experiment. And that's really what we call systemizing. And we do that in mathematics. So we might take as the input the number three. We perform an operation. Let's say we cube it. And we get the output. We always get the number 27. So there's a good example, simple, a simple example in mathematics, that each time you take the input, perform an operation, you should get the identical output. And people with autism seem to like, they seem to be fascinated by this kind of predictability that we call systemizing. You can also see a feedback loop, because engineers do this when they're designing systems. That they're hoping that they're going to get the same result every time when they designed a new bit of engineering. They're also watching to see what the output is, to see how they can refine their system to get it to perform to as perfect a level as possible. And it turns out that this notion of systemizing goes back to um, the mathematician George Boole. So uh, in the 19th century, he wrote a book called The Laws of Thought, where he was trying to identify what do we do when we're trying to be rational, we're trying to use logic. And he came up with the idea that the way we think, the way we draw log logical conclusions, is what he calls taking something called the if, if this is the input, then he said we move on to the and, and something happens, then we see the result. And I think this perfectly maps onto the notion of systemizing, input, operation, output, 
And George Poole is rightly respected for having created the foundations of the computer age, because this is exactly what computers do. And this is exactly what we do in the field of logic in trying to understand uh, what constitutes logical thinking. Very simple, but there might be circuits in the mind that really just track these relationships, input, operation, output, or what we'll call if, and, and then. So here's a very practical example that comes from Vinton Cerf, who's the co-inventor of the internet, but who reports this problem that he encountered, which is called the peppercorn problem. We've all had this, where you put the peppercorns into the grinder, and sometimes they come out, and sometimes they just get stuck. So if you analyze the problem, which is what he did, in terms of this input operation output, what you can see is if you put the peppercorns in one at a time, as you can see on the left, and then you grind, you get a certain output, the peppercorn comes out nicely ground. But if you put lots of peppercorns in at the input, then you get this constriction, um, a kind of bottleneck, and you get nothing coming out. So this is just a, another simple system that you can analyze in terms of these logical operations, the input, the operation, and the output, whether it applies to a computer or whether it applies to a household object where you're trying to figure out what on earth is wrong with my peppercorn. <laughs> so back to people with autism. We've given them little tests of uh, mechanical reasoning of this kind. We went into secondary schools in Cambridge and we tested children um, who are in the general population who are 12 years old, giving them these little mechanical reasoning problems that they'd never seen before. And then 12-year-old children with Asperger's syndrome. And despite their disability, we found that they performed higher, better, on this test of mechanical reasoning. So here the test is that you look at the wheel that's going anti-clockwise. Uh, that's the input. You're performing an operation on it, and you're looking to see if you can predict what P will do. And the answer, for those of you who are struggling, is that it will move back and forth. The kids with, with autism or Asperger's saw this relationship very quickly compared to typical teenagers. So you might ask, who's got the disability? <laughs> so in my university, we wanted to pursue this in a little bit more depth to try and understand this connection between systematic thought and autism. And we went into the maths department and we simply asked the question to the students, do you have autism? Very direct. What we found was that there are more students in the maths department with a formal diagnosis of autism than in the humanities. So again, this is showing us that there seems to be a link between minds that are predisposed to looking at patterns, maybe even have a talent at patterns, in this case, mathematical patterns, and the likelihood of having autism. We also gave that measure, the, autistic, the autism spectrum quotient, just measuring autistic traits to students in my university. Um, and we gave that to scientists and those working in the humanities. And again, what you can see is that even if people in the sciences don't have autism, they just score higher on this measure of autistic traits, which is a quantitative measure. 
uh, that's distributed throughout the population. So we're seeing another example of a link between scientific talent and autistic traits. So you can see how this, this um, scientific ability, what I'm calling systemizing, might be adaptive in all sorts of environments. For example, if you're good at systemizing, if you're good at spotting regularities out in the world, you can apply it to nature, you can use that if and then logic, if it's green and it tastes uh, in this particular way, then it might be a golden delicious apple. So you can start classifying nature using this systemizing principle, and you can do it by looking at the birds all around you. Again, you, when you classify anything out in nature, you're using the input-operation-output logic. You know, if it's got a black head and it's got an orange body, then uh, it's a bullfinch. If it's got a totally black body, then it might be a blackbird. So you're looking at nature but in this very systematic way. And we find that people with autism are drawn to this kind of classification of nature. They're systemizing nature. So this comes from a website of uh, a young man with autism called Sean Locke. And I would describe him as an autistic naturalist. He loves looking at nature, but he spots things that other people miss. So here he's also looking at the detail, and he finds a bird camouflaged against the tree trunk, which is called a little tree creeper. And he's taking photographs of them. So you can look at his website and see that his way of seeing the world is revealing the beauty of nature. And this is Jacob Barnett, who's in the States. And um, he's fascinated by mathematics and physics. Uh, and as a child, he was precocious in these areas, even though he has autism. And he was admitted to his local university at the age of 10 to take a maths and physics course. So degree level at a precocious age. So again, we're seeing this kind of um, uh, association between autism and scientific talent, where in one context, you say he's got a disability out in the playground, having to socialize with the other kids, but placed in another context, he can really blossom. Here's another man who came to our clinic um, and his passion is gardening. He's got Asperger's syndrome, and he consistently wins medals at the Chelsea Garden Show for his beautiful gardens. So he's systemizing nature because he's learned the names and the properties of every plant that you find in Britain. And he knows exactly which soil they need to, to blossom in, when they're going to come out at different times of the year, and he can design the perfect garden. So although he's got a disability, he's also using his very different mind to a fantastic effect. So we think that this, this um, link between autism and scientific talent is genetic, because if you look at the parents of children with autism, or even the grandparents, and you look at the occupations that they worked in, you find a disproportionate number of them worked in the field of engineering. So this is a study just looking at fathers and grandfathers 
why there's a child with autism in the family. What we found was that in earlier generations, you don't necessarily see autism, but you do see talent in understanding systems. So the, the genetics of scientific or systemizing talent and the genetics of autism might well be connected. I'll just show you a few examples of people who've really um, made remarkable contributions. Uh, and this is Jim Simons, who is one of the world's richest people. Some of you know him. He's, uh, he, he's got one of the largest hedge funds in the world. Uh, he has a child with autism. He's also a mathematician and a code cracker. So he's very quick at spotting the patterns in code. So he's used his remarkable ability uh, to make money, and he's given it back in terms of philanthropy so that he now funds a lot of autism research internationally. But again, we're seeing this potentially genetic connection between a parent who's mathematically gifted and the, the existence of a child with autism. And closer to home, this is Steve Shirley, Dame Stephanie Shirley, um, who has donated a lot of money to this university in Oxford uh, for the study of uh, mathematics and, uh, and uh, information technology. She is a mother with a child with autism. And in making her wealth, she's also, again, in this country, wanted to give it back to the autism community, and particularly in developing services and funding research. But again, we're seeing this link between a parent who is excellent at systemizing and the likelihood of having a child with autism. So this leads to a prediction. Might we expect autism to be more common in places like Silicon Valley, which attracts people who are talented at systemizing? People move there because they're good at information technology, computer science, just understanding patterns and big data. Uh, might we find that if they settle there, they have children? That would, we see an elevated rate of autism in such communities. Well, we conducted an experiment in a Silicon Valley closer to home. So this is the map of Holland, the Netherlands. Um, Silicon Valley is a long way away, but we went to Europe because there's a city called Eindhoven, which is the Silicon Valley of the Netherlands. Eindhoven is interesting because it's got the Eindhoven Institute of Technology and it's also got the Philips factory, which, which has been there for over 100 years, attracting people who are good at systems. So we've had several generations of people moving to Eindhoven, settling, having families, and we can look at the rate of autism amongst their children. And we compared that to two other Dutch cities, Utrecht and Harlem, looking at all the diagnosed cases of autism in these three cities amongst the school population. What you can see is that autism was more than twice as common uh, in Eindhoven compared to these two other cities. So this doesn't directly prove the link with um, parents, because all we, all we were doing was looking in the schools. But it certainly suggests, again, that where you have communities which are enriched for talent uh, in information technology, uh, we might find higher rates of autism. So I'm going to finish shortly 
by um, just trying to bring this together. That I've talked a bit about the social difficulties in autism, and this is a model which is trying to uh, integrate those social difficulties that you might think of in terms of empathy, being able to take someone else's perspective, understand what, what they might be thinking and feeling on one dimension. So that's the vertical axis, um, the y-axis, with another dimension, which is what I've been call, calling systemizing. The idea is that we all fall somewhere in this space. Um, that these are two dimensions of personality, if you like. Some of us have um, sort of better empathy or better social skills, and maybe we're less good at spotting patterns and particularly doing mathematics. And others might have the opposite profile. So this space is the whole population. And what we have been finding in our research, um, let me just help you read this graph, is that if you're at point zero, right in the center of that graph, it means you're absolutely average for the population on both dimensions. And your empathy is as good as your systemizing, but you're just kind of in the average of, on both dimensions. As you go up that uh, vertical axis, your empathy is above average, and as you go down, your empathy is below average. And similarly on the horizontal axis, as you go out towards the right, your systemizing is above average, and as you go over to the left, your systemizing is below average. So everybody could be plotted somewhere in this space. What we've been finding is that in the white area of the graph are people whose systemizing is as good or as bad as their empathy. They don't show a discrepancy between the two. The people up in the light blue area have higher empathy than, the, than systemizing, so they're showing a kind of bias. We actually find more females in the population that fall into that light blue zone. In the pink area on the graph are people who show the opposite profile. People whose systemizing is at a higher level than their empathy. We find more males in the population fall in that, in that zone. And what we're predicting is that in the red quadrant of this graph, down in the bottom right-hand corner, we should find more people with autism. So in the red zone, your systemizing might be anywhere from average through to superior, but your empathy might be below average. So what do we find if we actually go out in the population, give people measures of empathy and systemizing, and plot where they fall? Well, you can see lots of data points. This is what we love as scientists. So each little blob on the graph is a person, and we can see where they're located. And you might be able to see that there are more yellow dots uh, up at the top left-hand corner. Those are women in the population. More of the green dots in the centre of the graph, these are men in the population. So there seems to be a shift. But these are really just about groups. These, you can certainly find individuals who are male or female who don't, who are not part of the cloud of their group, if you like. And then we find more of these purple and red dots down at the bottom right-hand corner. And those are people with autism. So just eyeballing the data, you can see that the population is scattered. 
that your gender seems to have something to do with where you might fall, but actually your gender doesn't predict what kind of mind you're going to have, because you might be typical or atypical for your gender. And if we try and do a count of all those dots that we were just looking at, in terms of these different profiles, what I've tried to pick out to save time is just three of these profiles. So in yellow um, are women whose empathy is higher than their systemizing. We can see 43% of women show that profile, compared to only 12% of men. So if we, if we look at the blue number, that's people who show the opposite profile. Their systemizing is at a higher level than their empathy. Here we find 53% of men versus 21% of women. So you can see, as a group, we're comparing males and females. We're seeing differences, controversially. This is the, uh, the book that Marcus mentioned, uh, called The Essential Difference, which is kind of trying to understand some of these group differences you see, on average, between men and women, boys and girls in the population, which may have relevance for understanding why autism is more common in boys. And there's that red number at the bottom of, of this table. So this is the profile where your systemizing is anything from average to above average, but your empathy is below average. So you show a big discrepancy between these two dimensions. And that's where we find about 60% of people with autism. So the numbers don't fit the model perfectly, but the numbers are certainly in the direction predicted by the model. So I'm going to finish just by telling you about this child, Max Clark, who is 10 years old. He loves patterns. Uh, he's got autism. He lives in California. Uh, and for him, patterns are the Rubik Cube. He not only solves the 3x3 three three Rubik Cube very fast, but he can do the 4x4, four four, the 5x5. Five five. In fact, he relishes that. And he's ranked in the top 100 Rubik Cubers in the world. So despite disability, if we saw him socializing with his peer group, we also see, under the right conditions, a fascination, even a talent, with patterns. I'm going to stop there. Uh, I want to thank you for your attention. I invite you to visit our website if you want more information about uh, any of the studies I've talked about. And then we can open it up for questions and discussion. Thank you very much.